Hey, friends and family of the Everyday Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for your continued support and listening and being with us. Um, I just wanted to give you all a heads up that for the next few episodes, the sound quality may not be what we want it to be, what we like it to be, or really even up to the standard that we place on ourselves. Um, I think as we all are kind of reeling with the effects of the coronavirus and safer at home orders and and things that surrounds what we need to be doing in this time. Uh, we all recognize that you know things are going to be a little bit different. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for continuing to listen to us and to support us. Uh, it really means the world to us. Um, but we do apologize that the sound may not be uh, what we want it to be. But bear with us, once this is all over, we are working towards making sure that we're going to have even better sound quality through this. Um, and, I, and I'll ask, because we have a lot of people who are finding us as of late, just organically, but I, w- I would ask that our listeners may take a moment to, on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, help other people find uh, what we're doing in this time, and help other people engage with some of these conversations that we're having about how to how to best be Christians, how to best process our theology in our everyday world and our everyday life. Um, other ways to support us, too, uh, if, if you feel so inclined, we have a link in our show notes, in our bio, whether it's Spotify or um, Apple Podcast, to our Anchor account, which if you feel so inclined to donate, every little bit helps in helping us make sure that we can keep up the sound quality and the work that we're doing. Uh, thank you guys so much for for going on this journey with us, and we hope to keep producing great content for you here in the future. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today on Everyday Theology, we are very pleased to have with us Ed Gunger. Um, so welcome, Ed, to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. It's my delight to be with you. Uh, we also have Robbie Waddell, one of my colleagues, with us again today. And so always good to have Robbie. Always good to be with you, Aaron, and so happy to have Bishop Ed with us. Yeah, and, and so just to let our listeners know... Um, Ed Gunger, he is Bishop in the Communion of Evangelical Episcopal Churches. Um, love the title. Uh, it, it brings me this kind of like sense of like awe, even just hearing the title. Um, but if you wouldn't mind maybe letting us, uh, letting our, my listeners know, our listeners know kind of who you are and what it even means to be a bishop in that tradition. Okay, well, basically, um, I was brought up in my uh, spiritual experience uh, as a charismatic or Pentecostal evangelical. And uh, even though when I was a kid, I was, I was participating in the Latin Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And then when I had an encounter, pretty significant encounter with Christ when I was in as a teenager, there really was no way that I found place in that space, in that liturgical space. 
Well, as the years went on and I was trained in Bible school and uh, doing a number of things, entered into ministry, pastored a couple of different churches, um, both small rural churches and a mega church uh, in a in a city context. Um, I found myself just shifting, something shifting, and in my heart began to hunger for um, more of a rootedness, I guess is the only way I can say it. And went back to school. I decided to go back and get a philosophy religion degree. And when I did that, I started to encounter the um, the deeper history of the church. I had, for whatever reason, bought into, I don't know if it was ever explicitly said, but bought into this notion or this mythology that the church was alive and fresh and, and um, a true up until the end of the first century, maybe beginning of the second century, and then sort of went into this this loss and uh, lost its power and and then somehow didn't resurrect until either the Reformation, but for me as a Pentecostal, it would have been Azusa Street, right? So yeah, yeah. You know, that early that early and latter rain kind of uh, uh, juxtaposition. And and what I did when I began to do the studying of just philosophy, you immediately run into, because philosophy and religion are pretty much the same in the ancient world, you run into Christian philosophy, which is Christian faith, and ran into these fathers, these church fathers that were brilliant and deeply pietistic. And many of them even have uh, works of the spirit and gifts of the spirit in play. And it sort of shattered that. And so I began to say, wait a minute, what's really here? So, so what ended up happening was I began to rethink how the streams of the Christian faith um, the evangelical stream, the charismatic stream, and then this kind of historical, uh, many times liturgical streams could be blended together for a kind of richer kind of sense. So as I'm looking around the landscape, the people that kind of popped out were the Anglicans because they uh, carry both a Protestant impulse and then this sort of historical kind of thing. And the uh, Anglican church has been a little bit in um, de-evolution. They've, uh, they have kind of because of social issues and stuff, kind of experience fragmentation. But there's a flow, organic flow of the kind of of Anglican impulse of loving scripture and loving the history and the story of the church and loving the spirit that caught me. And so the uh, the community of evangelical, evangelical Episcopal churches is really out of that organic flow of the ongoing Anglican movement. And uh, so anyway, that's I got involved with them. I was priested um, uh, after studies, and then I was eventually consecrated as a bishop. And I am now, we started out with a uh, uh, a, um, a missional diocese in, the, in, in that it was just a small group of people and then just one or two churches. Now we've grown to about six churches over the last couple of years. And um, so I'm involved with uh, this whole uh deal and absolutely love it. But my real heart really personally is in this world, the educational world, just talking about why and how we approach our faith and how so much of what has happened in our past can actually inform what's happening now and help us navigate into the future. So, yeah, I, I, I'm so excited, really. Um, over the last decade or so, I would say a lot of my students have been rediscovering the historical church and some of its practices and its spirituality. And to see this kind of happening, not just in my students, but kind of in the church world. So do you have um, kind of some ideas on 
why you think uh, Pentecostal and charismatic types are being drawn to the historical church and its practices? Yes. Well, you know, I think that not only are we people of faith, we're also people in a modern world. And whether we realize it or not, some of what's happening in the culture, and uh, and I do think God moves in culture, uh, not just um, through the church. I think the church needs to be a leading prophetic voice, but but there is a way in which God is moving over the world. I mean, you you have, for instance, in the Hebrew text, the prophecies about Jesus, or the prophecies about a Messiah coming, but you also have around the world, all the way in Asia, um, the mystics or, or, or sibyls that were around the time within a couple hundred years of Jesus giving prophecies of some ruler was going to rise. So, you, so there's always a way, I think, in which God is moving that isn't just within the story of uh, the Jewish story, the Christian story, but but he's pulling on us. And, and just like um, uh, those of us that are Pentecostals, if we look at our history, we certainly have God's voice speaking to us, but we also had, we're also Americans and we're also, you know, Wesleyanism influenced us and, and um, the, the pragmatism of our culture influenced how we approached our faith. And, and I think that in some ways, I would say that God is pulling the whole world in some ways that I think explicitly is seen in the church. Well, the reason I bring that up is because notice in the last 30, 40, 50 years, People have been interested in things like um, their DNA, their background, their, you know, doing uh, sketches of the past, trying to figure out. Yeah, know, 23 and me. Right. Uh, where, 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 what are, you know, am I from, what part of the world are my ancestors from? I think that impulse is also influencing the church to make us ask, where do we come from? We're not just yeah. making this up. How does our story that started before me actually inform us? I, I one of my uh, friend, uh, favorite people, not friend, but per favorite people that I love reading is, in this regard, is a Methodist scholar, D. H. Williams, and he he talks about how when the church refuses to be informed by the past, that we kind of enter, and this is very American, but this kind of ahistorical. And which ultimately is a kind of theological amnesia. We're not just aware of our past. And he writes, the real problem with amnesia is not only does the patient forget his loved ones and friends, but he no longer remembers who he is. And yeah. I think in some ways, um, at least in me, I, as I began to grow as a charismatic and was big on preaching as, as hard and as open and as with fervency, and singing as long as I could sing and bringing people, trying to bring people in the presence of God. There was a point at which I felt like our modalities weren't rooted enough, weren't deep enough. And inadvertently, which is a great charismatic story, I was in a service and I felt I'd have been feeling this way for months and months. There's something more. What's missing? And I sort of stumbled. It was at, really out of frustration. I, I was kind of sitting there on the standing there on the stage, and I didn't know quite what to do. We'd sung as long as we could sing. I'd preach as long as I could preach. I still felt this kind of sense of uh, disorientation in some way, and I this came into my head: pray the Our Father. And I, you know, I didn't. I, as a little Catholic kid, I prayed that, but I didn't had ever been in a charismatic or Pentecostal or evangelical. Yeah, I actually prayed that right. 
So I said, let's do that. And as we prayed, our Father, who art in heaven together, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We walked through the prayer. <laughs> I felt this kind of, <laughs> I don't know, some, some sort of wrestling, some sort of, some sort of something pulling inside. And I was so surprised. I mean, the best way I could describe it, like if you're out on the lawn or something, working on the lawn and you heard something by your house and the bushes, you know, and there was a little bit of what's that, you know, what, what's in the world. And, and that's what happened. That was the first step that I began to open up to the idea. Maybe there's stuff in our past practices, ways that the church approached this that isn't just dead, but it's helpful that roots us to the story that's before us and not just what we come up with novel uh, in our context to be as accommodating as we can with loud music or great fun preaching. I mean, maybe there's something deeper here. That's what. Yeah. I, it's funny that you say that. Cause I, I feel like what you're kind of expressing, especially for me, I'm a millennial grew up in a, in a very Pentecostal kind of tradition household. Still in, in that Pentecostal tradition and uh, some of that same resonation kind of resonates with me. Mm. And, and, it, and it happens, I think, and resonates with, you know, people around me. For instance, um, my wife, when we were getting married, we just got married last year, end of last year. And, um, you know, she, as we were planning our wedding, she kind of heard uh, the Anglican wedding or, or marriage description and she said, I just love this. Like, I want this to be at the beginning of our um, wedding ceremony. And I said, well, you know, I've got a friend who's an Anglican priest. Like, why don't we just kind of like really lean in? And we ended up having a very kind of Anglican wedding ceremony, um, yeah. which for a, for a Pentecostal, you know, the Pentecostals in the room were like, well, this is different. This is, you know, interesting. Uh, yes. But the amount of people who came later and said that was probably one of the most beautiful weddings we've ever been a part of. And it was, you know, a bunch of people in the room who had never probably sat in an Anglican service or actually engaged with liturgy um, and recognizing how kind of beautiful and how the liturgy kind of just moves one into this love of God in a in a very unique way that we have like you said, almost forgotten. We've had amnesia from, and we've we've kind of failed at recognizing what that can stir up in us yes. um, because we have such singular visions, maybe, I think, of what the church could be or should be. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think that most of us get there are certain spaces where we want more than just spontaneity. I, I think that our culture so, and particularly as Pentecostals, I mean, I I love the move of the spirit. I mean, I love the moment when um, when we're hearing the now word of God, right? But there's there's some way in which um, spontaneity isn't enough. Uh, you, when you think about appropriateness, like whether it's a graduation ceremony and there's a degree of um, appropriateness that's, that is done or not done, or a funeral or a wedding. And I think that in some of those cases, we kind of long for tradition. Um, there's, we long for symbol. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, I, the, the reality is that symbols in some way um, capture something deeper in us, right? So the human tendency to have symbols like human touch or a smile or a kiss or a wave or a handshake, these reveal 
that they're kind of outward things that reveal something much more deeper. There's a, there's a kind of sense that in, in our inner being, we want to have expression and they're done in these physical actions of symbols and that kind of thing. So in some, sometimes I think we long for more than just, um, you know, for instance, in our Pentecostal charismatic praise and worship, the style always was ex- was stressed at the expense of what was being sung. So we kind yeah. of tried to have you know, the worship's framed up by loud music and great music and even overwhelms the human voice, which incidentally was a favorite instrument of biblical choice, right? But you have yeah, the, yeah. It's kind of it, it does have and I love it on one way. And then you have these therapeutic messages, which oftentimes kind of submits to the tyranny of the practical where easy understanding and, you know, uh, immediate application are not the measures of success. And, and so the whole worship experience is about this moment feeling in a certain way. And it misses some of the deeper things that, you know, your marriage isn't just a, a weekend. It's something that you're setting in motion for your whole life. I think when, when that happens or somebody dies and you're trying to, process how I live now with this person not being in my life. Nobody really wants you to, uh, the minister to get up there and just make up stuff or just try to blather just in some spontaneous way. There's something about, you know, the, the wedding dress, the something old, something new. There's something about those rings being exchanged or something about vows yeah. that are familiar that they have, they tether us to the kind of life that's transgenerational instead of the moment. And I think that's part of what we're aching for, particularly in the Western culture. Yeah, so I think um, one of the things I'd like for us to talk about just a little bit are ways in which um, either we can go at this in a couple of different ways. Either, uh, Ed, we could talk about the church calendar and and the ways in which the calendar provides an alternative rhythm to what we typically have in our culture or and or we could talk about just the movement of the liturgy from the from the entrance to the word to the table and the exit um pick pick up on one of those two and and talk if you would about the ways in which those those things shape us yeah well as a historian which is which is what i love i the reason i like history is because I mean, I love theology too, but theology likes to look for absolute propositional truths that are ahistorical and universal. And even though I think there are some of those, I think there are less of those than what we'd like to say, like to think, because I think that that what we're doing is an unfolding story of a living God moving within the context of people's lives in real time, in real places. And so listening to how they wrestled with things and processed things, I think is the most informing because it's not like when we look at the past, we have this perfect uh, golden age we're trying to imitate. That's that's bad historical research. What we when we yeah. look at the past, we're just all it is is that we see bits and pieces of an unfolding narrative with these storied lives, and who they are and what they are is important, and we should try to resource and try to hear that. But we're also important, and we get to add to the story. So I think history is a fairer way of doing that, and the history of 
liturgy, I think, is what's so significant. I And if I'm going down the wrong trail, Robbie, please uh, tell me to shut up. And, no, th- no, this sounds great. Well, what, what captured me was the understanding that there was a kind of way in which people did religious things. They Right from the beginning, I mean, you have um, in the Jewish story, there were ways, just like a lot of times weddings look like this, right? There's a kind of uh, methodology. There's an entrance. There's a, you know, things that they do. There are words that are said, promises that are made. And, and we know that. We know as we read um, sacred texts and the history around sacred texts written by other texts that just tell of it. For instance, in Luke 4, we see Jesus going into the synagogue. And they bring to him the scroll. He opens it up where it is written. He reads this text from Isaiah. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. The attendant takes it. And then Jesus goes and sits in this particular seat. These are all very liturgical movements. And what we discover from liturgical uh, uh, historicity is that the Christians basically took the... the, uh, liturgy of the Jews, that the fact that they would have prayers that they prayed, songs that they sang, they would read from sacred text, and they would have these naked readings of the text, and then someone would articulate or explain or do some teaching on it, and then they would have other kinds of prayers. We know that the church basically imported that liturgical arc, and it they had entrance, and they had readings, and they had prayers, and they had singing. We know they also added creeds. We know that they also then ultimately on every one of those gatherings would uh, participate in the Lord's table. I mean, for them, every time they gathered, they gathered to participate in the Lord's table. So you see these um, very kind of structured things that all the apostles, all of the early church fathers, if you read anything from the first, second, third century and onward, these this there was a very, very set way in which they did things. Now, we still do those things. Most of us sing. Most of us read from Holy Scripture. Most of That's us right. preach. But, but what happened was that a lot of people don't realize is that when we got to um, the 17th century, revivalism, which, which starts with guys like Wesley. Wesley was an Anglican priest. And what his concern was, and it is a deep concern that we should still have, he was concerned about dead faith. He was concerned about people whose hearts were far from God. We see that all the way back into the Old Testament, right, with Isaiah saying, you're you're giving, speaking to me with your words, but you're in mouths, but your hearts are far from me. The notion of an alive heart, Wesley calls it the warming of the heart. Um, yeah. That is still a critical issue for all of us that are in religious life. We can go through the motions and be dead. So he along with many others, began to say, we need to revive, we need to warm the heart. So they looked at the historical liturgy, all that's done there, and they said, what is done in there, in that liturgy, that might be able to be used to to, uh, ramp it up, to capture lives? Well, what pulls people emotionally is great singing, um, great preaching, and people that know how to pray. And so what is born is the revival of basically picking like a smorgasbord from the liturgy, which is a smorgasbord, picking the things you want that have the end um, goals that they were after. And so they were doing that. They had revival meetings, which had the singing and the preaching and the prayers. And what ended up happening is some people said, we like this. We don't want the other stuff. 
It's opaque. Mm. And so you get what's called a broad church or you get what's called um, low church. And from the 17th, uh, 17th century, 18th century, 18th century, 19th century, particularly, you have the emergence of those kinds of free churches and, and uh, revivalist holiness movements, and then eventually Pentecostal churches. All it's really doing is the, the center liturgy, but paled down. So the question, yeah. the question is, is there gold in them hills? Are there things <laughs> that really yeah. would help us? Because that's where we got it all from the beginning. And it's arguable that if the Apostle Paul showed up or any of the apostles or any of the church fathers showed up, would they recognize us? <laughs> I mean, in some yeah. way, to be sure, our piety, our love for God, our willingness to give him praise, they would recognize that. But they'd wonder where is the reading of texts where nobody's just trying to talk about it, where they just we just hear the word of the Lord uncontextualized. Where is where are the prayers right that are prayed in specifically? The where's the de- declaration of our faith in a creed? Where's the Our Father? They always pray. We know all the way back to the Didache, which most modern scholarship. I mean, they used to put it about one hundred ninety to one twenty-five. Now, because of the the observation of the primitive view of Christology and the primitive view of the Eucharist that's described there. Many are putting it back to 50 CE. So, so, and in those texts, you know, we know that um, uh, there's this sense of order. Those guys from that place, they wouldn't recognize what most of us do today. So, so maybe help me and help us process kind of this uh, idea of, I, I know a lot of people might hear this kind of like call to look back to ancient liturgies and to ancient church calendars and trying to find ways of bringing that into our, you know, modern expression might, might kind of just... I don't, I don't know, like in some, some degree say like, well, that just sounds like we're just trying to implement kind of like old styles of church, Um, you know, and, and they might go, that's not going to connect to today's culture. And that's not going to connect to people who we're trying to reach, or, you know, that's not going to be a broad enough audience. What would you say? um, How is that, you know, right, wrong? What are, what are we missing when we kind of use that kind of normal critique maybe of this idea? Well, I, great question. I, I think that, that first of all, I think we need to ask the questions, why do we think the way that we think about things? Anything that we think about in the past, because we're Americans, if you look at, there's a great book called The Democratization of Christianity by Nathan Hatch. He's a Latin Catholic guy out of uh, Notre Dame, um, and, and in it, he basically walks through how America begins and how America addresses because of our uh, wanting to push away from the um, uh, Europe and the deep traditions of Europe. America became very ahistorical. We begin to talk about what only matters is right now and the future because we're in control of the future. And the very, our whole um, culture was baptized in the notion that the past has nothing to offer us, that the past, there's nothing, if you remember uh, 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 Emerson uh, would make comments like there's nothing there but dead snakes. 
and uh, uh, and and nothing to be nothing to be garnered from the past because we're a people that look at now, assess what needs to be done, and move into the future. Very, pragmatism is the is the philosophy of the American mind. Whether we like to admit it or not, those things influence us in our religious thinking. And um, the idea of trying to accommodate the culture, I love that. I think that often, well, not often, through the whole history of the church, we have this record of how the church was able to step into a culture and um, speak into it. And oftentimes, um, as a result of speaking into the culture, was able to transform the culture. I mean, it's Robert Wilkin uh, writes, um, Christianity is a culture-forming religion, and the planting and growth of Christian communities led to the remaking of cultures in the ancient world, along with the creation of a new civilization, or more accurately, several new civilizations, end quote. So, and what he's speaking to is he's talking about how Christianity had this long tradition of enculturating the places that they arose in, that Christianity always adopts. And so you'll see in the history examples like Islam, uh, unlike Islam, rather, Christianity has no sacred tongue, right? It adapted to the Greek world, the Syrian world, Coptic world, Latin world, Armenian world, whatever. And it's often the Christians who first wrote in those languages they came into. So it's always accommodating itself to cultures where it grew, but it did not change the essence of what it was during the process. That's the problem. I think that the accommodation that we're seeing uh, in, in the user-friendly kind of ideas, trying to make people have a sense that there's, you know, that, that uh, we want to capture their interests. So we try to create programs that enable converts and maturing uh, believers to kind of just um, uh, see what's in the culture that they make, that they feel comfortable about it. And we try to bring that into the church. It's anti-institutional, it's often informal, it's non-dogmatic, it's therapeutic. We're kind of echoing the culture's commitment to self-help, self-improvement. Yeah, in yeah. Terms. And what ends up happening is that we're, we're, it's not so much that we're helping people become Christian, we're helping people to become better Americans with, with <laughs> Jesus sprinkled on it. And so yeah. the average yeah. American is technically a neo-pagan, right? The, are they being Christianized? That's the question. So that that I think that's what some of us are asking in terms of the criticism of how our uh, wanting to connect with uh, people that are outside of faith is ending up causing us to get a little exhausted and not really win. It's, it's almost um, maybe to, to pare that down a little bit. It's almost like a, a, which direction are we flowing from? Mm. You know, are we, are we flowing from the direction of, to use that term self-help into Christianity? So if you, you know, are better with your finances, if you do some giving, if you, mm. you know, don't use certain language and you try to live this kind of life, then you will end up being a good Christian. Yeah. Versus kind of a, a more liturgical approach that says, uh, if, if I'm getting this right and please correct me if I'm not, but like the actually let's kind of find the base notion and these liturgical practices help us move towards the opposite direction, being a good Christian and how that relates then into being a good 
citizen of whatever country you're in. Yes. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think, um, I mean, going back to your point that you were making earlier uh, about people that just consider these things as artificial works of piety or dead things. I mean, that's really in that part of that's an American tradition. Part of that's part of our uh, Pentecostal charismatic evangelical mythology about anyone outside of our groups. Uh, and, and so there's this kind of sense that um, liturgies, collects, you know, written prayers, creeds, all of that kind of stuff, celebrated events on the church calendar are all just kind of dead works of religion, but they don't have to be. I mean, I, th- I think that, that, that our, again, this gets to our sense, particularly in charismatic life of this idea that only the stuff that comes from the heart matters. The problem is, is that we think that translates into just spontaneity, not realizing that there's none of us that are totally spontaneous. I mean, you go to any person and ask them to pray, and it won't be very long before you hear the same patterns of prayer coming out of them. Yeah. All of us have liturgies in us. I mean, it may not be great liturgies. I mean, if you ask somebody to pray, sometimes they're you know, Father God, thank you, Father God, that you're moving in the world, Father God. And we ask you, Father God, that somehow, Father God, you might be, we might see your presence. <laughs> and, and, and then put that over against um, like a, uh, a prayer for the world that is out of the, um, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Let me just read this one. Uh, it's, it's one of the prayers for mission. And here, here's how it goes. Instead of what I just said, here's the historical. This has been being prayed for hundreds of years. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. So yeah. I mean, thing, but the, you know, it's it, it. The way I like to think about it is, I, 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 I'm sure you guys were thought taught this, or, or at least implicitly taught it. Written prayers are dead. You know, they're the rote prayers Jesus warned about that you can't pray because you're not from your heart. I had people tell me all my life, "Don't even pray the Lord's prayer. You need to, you need to pray from the heart." And I, I would think, what I think is, what? I mean, just think of all of the songs that we sang, we just made up in the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord, we love you. You're so good to me, you know, right? And they have, they have no staying power, and they have no. They're not. They're not uh, Ebenezer's to us, right? They, they're not moments that we sang and something transpired in us. But one of the reasons we love some of the songs we love is precisely because they're poetically beautiful, theologically rich. Think of the hymns, and when right. we sing them, we could sing them dead. Or we could ride on those puppies, right? Jump on them and ride them into glory. <laughs> That's what we need to do. We need to grab some of this liturgy and the Eucharist and the all this stuff that's done in the liturgy. I think it's it's incumbent on us, just like the Hebrew writer said, when they heard the word priest of them, it didn't profit them. They had to mix it with faith that when we do this stuff, whether practicing the historical calendar or praying these rich prayers, we need to jump on those things, grab them, mix them with our faith, just like we do when we raise our hands. That can be empty. But if we'll learn to do it, there's some real good stuff. 
Yeah. And I think that's why, and maybe just to kind of put that into like an everyday sense, I think that's why so many people really do when a hymn is actually sung in a church, you know, maybe you haven't been, you know, you haven't heard a hymn in a church in a while, but then all of a sudden, you know, one of these kind of hymns that you might've grown up with gets sung and, and, and the group sings it together. Uh, there's something dare say almost magical in the moment of like going to this kind of thing that we had attached ourselves to early on in life and re-expressing them once more and yes in kind of contemplative ways and thoughtful ways they're nothing they're nothing they're not dead as you're saying but actually they really they really do reconnect us to this kind of moment and this space of being with god that the newest song is not going to be able to do. Right, exactly. Yes. And you know, you're bumping up against something there that goes back to Robbie, a comment you made about um, why these things matter. I mean, when I went back to school in 2000 to do my religion degree, philosophy degree at a secular university, one of the guys that was in there was a really a rock star uh, um, uh you know, academic within the Latin Catholic world. And um, I ended up going with him as the years went on several times at the Vatican and stayed in the Vatican as they were doing uh, various works. But one of the things he told me that grabbed me and that threw me at first, but he said to me, he said, you know, the problem with you evangelicals is what? He said, you don't have enough religion. He said, you don't have huh. enough religion. And I and my quip was, well, yeah, we have relationship. <laughs> <laughs> right. What he was saying was, you're not tethered to anything physical. You know, you don't. Everything's in your head. Everything's just emotional. There's nothing that's a practice that you know. Or you know, he was that was his criticism. He didn't know a lot about charismatic. But the point is, is that in some way, I think that's a fair criticism. We have become so oriented to my personal experience and what I see in the scriptures myself, all within my head, and not realizing that in some ways we've reduced Christianity to a kind of Gnosticism, which is just that interiority of wrestle with God. And we don't do understand the value of doing things like um, uh, participating in the Eucharist. So I think we get this when we come laying out of hands. I think we get that when we lay hands on people, as Pentecostals, something happens. I think that's the closest we get to the notion of sacrament, that there's something that happens while we physically do that. But we forget that most of what Jesus did was so powerful because it was precisely physical, right? That yeah. His acts that he did were physical acts. When he goes to Calvary, it was a physical thing. When he suffers, he's it's a physical thing. When he raises from the dead, it's a physical thing. And these physical acts that Jesus did which is what sacramentality is all kind of rooted in physical acts, things actually happen. They continue to extend. They may be in one things that happen and, and sacraments are things we do over and over. But in some way, what happens in when we do a baptism or when we do the Eucharist or when we lay hands on people is we're simply extending the physicality of Christ who's invisible into the natural world. And so yeah. in some ways, I think, even the liturgy itself, when we repeat these things together, we're standing in an act that's repeating that that brings not death and old structure, 
but a place where we can express, just like a smile expresses what's inside me, or a handshake can express what's inside Don't shake hands right now. But you know, don't. <laughs> Please not. Or a kiss, or a wave, or a touch. These all reveal what's going on in the spiritual person, right? Well, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, is still interceding for us. When we baptize, when we lay hands on someone, when we ordain someone, when a couple gets married, these sacramental things that we do are certainly physical expressions, physical things that we do where God's actually doing something in the midst of that. And that's some of the stuff that got pale that we revisit now in some of the sacramental teaching and thinking that we have that I think 21st century going back to the to you saying you're demographic or psychographic, long for. They want something more than just what's made up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so much of this I think is so wonderful. It's really it's really resonating with me and I think it will with our listeners too. I mean, especially in this particular historical moment we find ourselves in. Yes. With with quarantining and with self distancing and the the realization of our mortality and the the fear of death and what it might mean for our loved ones it's 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 now i mean it's always but now we see it i think more starkly the need for these practices mm-hmm. and how they might shape us and yeah. the rhythms that the calendar provides or more regularly the liturgy provides that that shape us into a certain kind of type of people because you know every week we've we've collectively confessed our sins we we've, yes. we've received forgiveness we've uh sung songs we've uh uh heard the text we've heard the preaching and then we you know profess the creed um we you know start to come to the table and we share our gifts and we exchange the peace and we receive the the body and blood of christ and become the body of christ and then are sent out into the world it's those types of rhythms i think that we really need because when things go bad we resort to muscle memory yes we we resort to what's second nature we we behave not in ways that are thought out and and rational our decision making processes get overwhelmed when um when chemicals are released in our brain to either fight or flight so something else is going to kind of uh, guide us and direct us. And if, if we've had these practices and they're deep in us, then that's what does, you know, forgiveness yeah. comes out. Mercy comes out yes. because we've been practicing these things. And I think without it, we, we end up, we end up kind of uh, going in all sorts of directions that if we weren't stressed and we weren't kind of finding ourselves in difficult situations. We'd never choose to do. Yeah. Yes. I. I it, it reminds me, in kind of going off of both of your conversations there a bit. Again, to to look at my own uh, kind of traditioned upbringing is that I was so taught to look ahead to the future and to uh, spiritual matters. So, you know, Christ returning and going to heaven, these things that we heard, I I mean, I heard every Sunday morning and Sunday night because we were super holy and did both, right? And uh, like this kind of 
this kind of reality that was so looking towards kind of a spiritual reality that it often left the physical world behind. Yes. And, and, you know, we can, we can name that in this kind of Gnostic pseudo spirituality, uh, that's kind of been pervasive within the church. Um, but I, I like what both of you have kind of said there, because it actually says if we leave kind of the, the world, if we leave these earthly practices behind, there's almost nothing to ground us to this creation that's been been given for us to enjoy and to participate in. Yes. And we just tend to forget it, whether that is actually forgetting care of the earth, but also forgetting, like Robbie was saying, how to be kind to other people and how to care for other people because we're just looking towards something else. Yes. It's interesting that the creed itself spends the largest part of the time talking specifically about Jesus who came and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead. I mean, even the mention of Pontius Pilate, he's, he's locking redemption into time and space There's something about the earthiness and the God's commitment to the story of humanity and being engaged with us, but that that I think you're 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 speaking to there, Aaron. But there's one other piece here that I would love to just just for a second speak to, and and that you're saying, Robbie, is that these whether you're talking about sacraments or you're talking about liturgies or you're talking about the things that we do as a church, they're decidedly us things. Yes, me things, which means mm, there are yeah, yeah. things that are done just when I'm by myself in some deep pietistic and devotional moment. Thank God for that, right? But there are things that we do that are us-oriented. I love Jesus' comment in Matthew where he says um, that when two or three are gathered together, there am I in your midst. I mean, obviously Jesus is with me when I'm sleeping, when I wake up in the middle of the night, when I'm all by myself. When I'm in the shower, Jesus Christ is with me. There's no way that he's not. He's always with us. But that text suggests that he's with us when we're us in a way that he's not with us when it's me. So certainly we see that in things like sacraments, like baptism. You don't baptize yourself. An other has to do it. Ordination. You don't ordain yourself. An other has to do it. You, You don't marry yourself, right? The sacrament of marriage must involves someone else. Technically, we're not supposed to Eucharist except or communion except when we're with others. We don't confess our faults to ourselves. We don't lay hands on ourselves. See, these in the liturgy, they're responses of the people. The Lord be with you and also with you. Also with you. Right? So these are moments and they're intentionally that. The reason for this, I think, is that the church was imagined by God to be the body of Christ in the earth after the ascension, after Pentecost. So the church on earth is the visible presence of the work of fulfillment in which Jesus Christ is now engaged through his glorified body. This means the church somehow distributes aspects of God's saving grace. I mean, I think you can be saved without being, you know, if you were on an island or whatever and, and knew that found the gospel. But th- there's an issue that, that, that the church has been pushed way to the margins in the Reformation. The church had always been considered a vessel of God's grace because it had, um, because of all the what things we're talking about, but it became corrupt. Luther and others pushed back. The question that many people are asking is, did they push back too far? I think, mm. and this is why for many Protestants, uh, liturgy doesn't matter. Uh, the church has become a kind of commodity. 
that the church yeah. is just like a club, right? So if I'm a bicyclist and I join a bicyclist club, great. We can bicycle together. But if we really have a fight, I can leave because I was a bicyclist before I showed up. So there's yeah. events, right, in which the church is a is just really a gathering together of a bunch of solo cups. It's not the unity we have is more of a aggregate unity where we don't get defined by our unity. We just are together, right? Like a bunch of solo cups are together. That's different than a body, right? So if, if, yeah. if the way a body is defined is when the body's together, it's actually a body. But if I cut off my finger and throw it in the street, someone's going to freak out when they walk by and see a finger by itself. Why? Because it's not contextualized. Well, Paul uses those analogies that the church is a body, which means if you're not part of it, you're a creepy movie. <laughs> right? you're, 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 it's out of context. So I think that what a big, huge part of this for many of us is we're discovering the power of us. We're discovering. I love it. Right. When I wake up and today, I mean, most days I believe in God, but there's some days I wake up and I go, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm believing today. But here's what I love is that I stand with people every week where we say, we believe in God, the father, the creator. Of yeah, we believe in Jesus Christ. Why I love that is because some days when I can't, the people around me can. And some days when they can, mm. I can and we can do this together. There's something so powerful about the usness of faith that we in Western American evangelical charismatic Protestant churches have lost. And some of that's being recovered. Yeah. So we're, we're I mean, I love all that. Um, not that we're losing that, but that we're recovering it, right? Um, but we're running out of time. Uh, so I, I want to ask this. Um, what can we, what can we do, especially as someone who is a bishop in a, in a kind of recovering the, these liturgical practices and helping kind of move groups of people forward in this, what can, what can, you know, our listeners do in order to kind of practice such a liturgy and practice this kind of, uh, us orientation and kind of grounding reality that we can get in liturgy even if they're not necessarily at a church that, you know, encompasses such liturgical practices? Great question. I I think, first of all, is celebrate the good that you have. I mean, the reality is we are all apostolic. The fact that we're calling on the name of Jesus, the fact that we're trying to open our hearts to him, the fact that we want the scriptures to have a voice in our lives and we want the, um, some way to connect with each other. All of those impulses are good beautiful impulses that we should celebrate. It's not like you're a class, you know, second class Christian because you're not deeply understanding of the historical expression or maybe liturgy seems uh, uh, dim to you. We don't, I remember when I was a kid, we used to talk to Baptists as though they were second class people because they didn't speak with tongues. And that was never fruitful or productive. No one is saying, I never try to tell people, if you're not doing this, 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 you're not really what you need to be. I always tell people, as I do when someone is wanting to be interested in the fruit of the Holy Spirit or maybe uh, the gifts of the Spirit, and they never have been, I always say, look, at you're, you're full, you have God in you. you. You have the Spirit, and you can't be a Christian and say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean yeah. more fullness. That's what I would start and say. Maybe the Spirit is calling you to some more fullness. Maybe um, there are some aspects of the church 
that you have to work through, prejudices maybe you have to sort of banish in order to even hear the church. Um, it's history. Uh, and it, it, one of the beautiful things about Anglicanism is that our appeal isn't just to the scripture. It certainly is. The scripture is the, it cannot violate scripture. But there's this issue of what's called the quadrilateral. It's the scripture, but then there's the creeds, which are kind of the Reader's Digest version of what the whole story is. So you have the scripture, the creeds, then you have the sacraments and how the sacraments become kind of physical sermons and theologies that are expressed. So the two gospel sacraments, baptism and Eucharist, were done before the New Testament was showing up. So much of the New Testament explicates and unpacks the theology of baptism and the theology of the Eucharist. So, so we the, the sacraments mattered, and so did what's called the historical episcopacy. These were the bishops and the pastors and the priests and the deacons. These were the ones that wrote through the history, their stories they articulate. I think if you understand, it isn't just you going in your Bible, with your Bible, in your closet. Understand most people couldn't even read before the Gutenberg Press. So reading your Bible and praying every day was not the way people had their spirituality. They were part of a community. They were, they were, they were opened up to the voices that were beyond just sacred text, even though sacred text ultimately was the judge of those thoughts. But if you expand a little bit and say, what more is there? And begin to read a little bit more widely. A good um, resource would be someone like D.H. Williams, who's a Methodist guy. Uh, Rowan Williams, also great. Read some stuff about the history of the church. Maybe dig more into the history of the church or start hearing the voices of these old dead people. Read Augustine. Read um, uh, some of these guys from the past. You, you'll see both things that are familiar and things that are pretty strange. But, but, but not be mean to yourself, not think you need some magic something or you, this is going to change everything. I think you'll begin to just be enriched and find it helpful. So I wouldn't freak out. Yeah. I wouldn't be open to doing more. Well, uh, thank you so much for being with us, Ed. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us about such, a, I think, a beautiful and important subject for the church today uh, and just for, you know, people, you know, to all together, like Christians all together, that we need to learn how to kind of maybe reconnect and practice. Um, for our listeners, though, if you wouldn't mind maybe giving our listeners some places that they can either connect with you or find out more about you or follow along with what you're doing, that'd be great. That's wonderful. We, if you want to go, we have a, a website called the, called Order of St. Anthony, S-T for saint.com. And what we do, that's an ecumenical expression. It's not explicitly Anglican or anything is we invite people to start discovering things like breviaries, which are prayer books that help to bring scripture in a different way and prayers in a different way uh, and invite people into kind of an ordered way of life, a neo-monastic kind of expression, which works great in the modern world uh, for people to begin to explore and scratch at uh, this issue, issue of, of practices that are from the ancient world, which includes things like remembering what's going on in the calendar around you and why those things are important. But they can certainly connect that way and see kind of what's going on, maybe consider uh, joining with us in prayer um, uh, in that kind of way. Uh, and, and it's very transformative. Order yeah. at anthony.com. Thanks so much. I know I'm, I, I was just seeing that you do kind of prayers in the morning at 8 a.m. and uh, on Zoom, uh, since we're in this kind of 
physical distancing kind of lockdown stay at home time. Yeah, and uh, you're welcome to come any of this eight central time. But uh, if you go to sanctuarytulsa.com, or I think it's also on the uh, uh, Order of St. Anthony's site, you can just click on a link and join us at 8 a.m. In the morning, we pray the Book of Common Prayer um, uh, liturgy. And then at night, we have just some sharing. Last night, we had Brian Zahn on, uh, who is an author. And we have different ones that we just talk about how we're processing this stuff and, and hoping that the physical distancing isn't spiritual or emotional distancing. And so we don't we'll do that. Uh, at least until we end up actually seeing each other. Hopefully we'll actually see each other. <laughs> That's right. Sure. Hopefully we'll get to see you again and see each other again at uh, SBS, even though it got canceled, postponed this year. Hopefully we'll get to see you next year. Crazy. Yeah, I ended up giving uh, up a lot more for Lent than I intended to. Not <laughs> actually seeing anyone touching them. Hugs. Hugs are just gone now, right? right. Uh, um, well, Uh, Thank you again so much, Ed, for being with us. It was our pleasure to have you with us, and we can't wait to speak with you again. Thank you so much. It's been my honor.